0: Mike. Lauren. Mike, does section two thirty keep you up at night?
1: Um, a lot of things do, but section two thirty, no.
0: Are you even a content moderation nerd?
1: I no, I am not.
0: Hey, everyone, welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. We're taping this episode really early in the morning this week, so my voice sounds terrible. Thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Kalori. I'm a senior editor here at Wired. And I'm also taping this early in the morning because <laughs> I live in the same neighborhood.
0: <laughs> or, yeah, but you sound good. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, All right, we're going to try to get through this. We're also joined yet again by Wired senior politics reporter, and we should note Josh Hawley's new best friend, Galad Edelman, joining us from Washington, D.C. And it turns out when you slide into my DMs and say, WTF, where's Galad on the podcast? We actually do listen because we've invited him back again. Hey, Galad.
2: Hi, everyone. Coming to you from late morning in Washington, D.C.
0: See, he sounds so professional.
2: This is going to be you in three hours. (laughs)
0: I hope I don't sound exactly like that in three hours. (laughs) All right, today we are talking about free speech on the internet. And since we can't seem to get away from Facebook news, in the second half of the show, we're going to talk about a big decision that was made by the company's oversight board this week. And it involves the man who, well... We haven't talked about very much since last year, but who occupied a lot of space in our collective minds for four years. But first, let's talk about Section 230. Now, you might be thinking, oh, okay, this is going to be a boring episode, but it's not. Okay, this is going to be really good. And this is important, because if you spent really any time on the Internet, you've probably heard about Section 230 or it's affected your experience on the Internet. It's a piece of legislation that was passed in the 1990s that prevents an online platform from being liable for what its users post on the platform. And it's been in the news a lot these past few months, you know, being both propped up and attacked from all sides of the political aisle. And while the law is having quite a moment right now, it's still somewhat misunderstood. Now, Glad here has spent months, literally months, because that's how we do features at Wired, writing a big cover story about Section 230. So now I'm going to ask him to just recite the law from memory. Go ahead, Glad.
2: Oh, I thought I was going to read the entire story out loud, like a sort of Audiobook episode of the gadget lab
0: spoken word style please
2: i don't know how facetious you were being but we certainly can read the most important part of section 230 out loud because it is pretty short and it says no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider
0: Now, this Section 230 is actually couched in the Communications Decency Act, right, which is the law that was passed in the 90s. Talk a little bit about the history of the CDA and then how Section 230 came to be.
2: Sure. So the CDA, the Communications Decency Act, was this big bill that was itself part of an even bigger telecom regulation bill. And then Section 230 was a section tucked into a bill, tucked into a bill.
0: So it's like a turducken of law.
2: Yeah, it was the duck. Okay. So the Communications Decency Act was this sort of censorious reactionary bill that basically tried to outlaw obscenity on the internet, but that got struck down almost immediately by the Supreme Court on First Amendment grounds. But the main thing that survived, that the court allowed to remain part of the law, was this thing called Section 230. To understand Section 230, we've got to go back a little bit. So. What happened was in the early days of the internet, it wasn't really clear how legal liability rules that applied in the analog, you know, our long history of law in the analog world would apply online. And particularly, there was a question about something called the republication rule of defamation law. So if I say something, you know, if I say something false and defamatory about Calore, he can sue me. If the newspaper quotes me saying that, He can also sue the newspaper. That's right. (laughs) Go get him, Kalori. So in the early days of the Internet, there were cases that sought to interpret that principle for these new things called websites.
0: Right. And one of them involved CompuServe and another involved Prodigy. And for those of you who aren't old enough to remember those, just Google them.
2: Right, so those these <laughs> these are the these are the early ISPs, which I'm old enough to remember mm-hmm. when we got our first dial-up modem. I think we had Prodigy. So, in the, the first case, involved one of these ISPs hosting a message board, and someone posted something nasty about someone else. The someone else sued the company for hosting that message, and the court said. The republication rule does not apply here. They're not like a newspaper that published something. They're more like a distributor or a bookstore. They're just hosting this bulletin board. They're kind of passive. Okay, then another case rolled around uh, in, a, in a New York state trial court. So really a low level, the lowest level type of court. And in this case, the uh, the investment firm Stratton Oakmont sued uh, Prodigy. So, so again, similar scenario, we're talking about a message board and somebody posted something mean about Stratton Oakmont, calling them liars and criminals. Now, parentheses, they were. This is the firm that uh, is depicted in The Wolf of Wall Street. So uh, these, these allegations were actually true, which is a funny sidebar. But they sued Prodigy. And in this case, it didn't go so well because Prodigy had advertised... Um, its ability to maintain a family-friendly environment. You know, it was, it was sort of trying to sell, market itself as we have moderation tools. And the judge held that against them. They said, well, if you're, if you're moderating, that means you, you know what's on your platform. And that means you have a responsibility to, to, de- to deal with it. You can't just walk away and say, oh, we're just a passive distributor. And the consequences of that ruling were really scary for the young internet industry because it created what has been called the moderator's dilemma, where it's like, okay, so you're saying we have to either turn a completely blind eye to everything that's on our platform, no matter how gross or offensive or whatever, or if we try to do the right thing and impose some moderation and try to make it a you know a cleaner or just or safer whatever environment, that's gonna put us at legal risk. That was a really perverse set of incentives because you're sort of choosing between a complete ugly free for all or way overly heavy-handed moderation because if you know if you're going to take on big legal risk every time something bad goes up you're just going to let very few things up in the first place. Section 230 was written to solve the moderators dilemma. There are anyway, it was it was written by two members of Congress, Ron Wyden, a democrat who's now a senator, and a guy named Chris Cox who's not in Congress anymore and um not to so, be
0: confused with the chris cox at facebook
2: exactly or the actor chris cox am i making that up
0: there's an actor named chris cox yes yeah. yeah there is oh all right
1: i'm sure there's several other people in several other professions with that name as well <laughs> but we're talking about the the former congressman
2: right right right. congressman <laughs> chris cox did not go on to to be an early facebook employee um so any hoodles they right they met for lunch and they hashed out a plan how are we going to deal with this and what they their plan to solve the moderator's dilemma was section 230 there are two key parts we're going to come back to the part that i already read out for you at the beginning of the show there's another part and it says that companies are not liable for taking good faith efforts to moderate their platforms that solves a moderator's dilemma because it says don't worry If you make the effort to get rid of objectionable stuff, that's not going to make you legally liable in court. They also passed the first part of the law, which I mentioned earlier, which says that someone like a prodigy that hosted a bulletin board or something would not be treated as the publisher or the speaker of something that a user posted, which means we're not going to stick with this republication rule that applies to traditional media.
0: Right. And and just to bring it to modern day, uh, we as wired are traditional media, right? We're we're publishers, but if you look at something like Facebook or Twitter or Reddit, despite the fact that a large number of people not only in the US but in the world get their news from those platforms now because it's being distributed on those platforms, those Modern-day platforms, internet platforms are not liable for what's published.
2: Exactly. It's hard to deny that you couldn't apply the exact same rules that apply to Wired to Facebook if you wanted anything like Facebook or Reddit or Twitter to exist at any kind of scale. Because the amount of content that's going up on those sites is many orders of magnitude more than what Wired publishes every day. So it wouldn't make sense to hold them to this same strict standard that a traditional publication is, where which is basically if we publish something defamatory, we are responsible for it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We can't say, "Oh, sorry, you know, got that got that one wrong." We'll let you a correction. Like we we can be can be on the hook, and so we have to be very careful not to do that. Where things got a little weird with Section Two Hundred and Thirty, though, is that. There's a lot of room in between the rules that apply to Wired and traditional publishers and no rules at all. And Section 230, instead of letting some compromise position develop to apply to these new types of platforms and mediums, just turned the dial all the way to the other end and said, you're just not gonna be liable.
1: That's the thing that's become the biggest issue, especially among lawmakers, right? Because if people can express Uh, far-right views or far-left views or post whatever meme they want about anybody, then it's going to make people upset, they're going to want to sue, they're going to get angry that they can't sue, and then they're going to want to get the law changed. And anybody who's been following this knows that um, there are a lot of U.S. lawmakers who are angry about Section 230, but when they talk about it, it's pretty clear that they don't really understand it and they don't really know what repealing it or amending it would mean. So I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about this confusion.
2: Absolutely. So there are kind of three main camps here. Two of the camps hate Section 230 for different reasons. So both Joe Biden and Donald Trump have said Section 230 should be repealed. Biden said it once in maybe a hasty moment, whereas Trump made a whole campaign thing about it last year, but they've both said it and it's in in this respect, they kind of represent the liberal and conservative version of I want to kill Section 230. The liberal version is Section 230 is letting people get away with telling lies about us on the internet. The conservative version is kind of the flip side. Donald Trump wasn't mad that platforms were leaving too much stuff up. He and other conservatives are mad that the platforms are taking too much stuff down. So the two different parties have equal and opposite um, bones to pick with the two different parts of the law. Those are two camps, both sort of pointing their guns at Section 230. And then there's the third camp which says, don't touch a hair on Section 230's head because if you do, you'll just ruin everything that's good about the internet. If you pull this brick out from the foundation of internet law, the whole thing will come crumbling down. We won't have free speech. Do you hate free speech? And uh, we and guess what? You'll also just ruin the economy because there's these big companies that are so profitable and it's, it's wonderful that they're profitable and they're profitable because they host user-generated content. None of these are correct. There's a nugget, certainly in the Joe Biden critique, in the sense that, yes, as I discussed in the article, there are times when people get away with the kinds of lies that actually raise legal Responsibilities race right? so most of the time lying you say is the leaked.
0: people who um, just to clarify who get away with lies You mean the platform owners? exactly
2: platforms mm-hmm. that like host the people who and, run
0: Facebook basically. Right
2: the, the platforms like Facebook or, or whoever else that host this content Make money by hosting the content and and having people pay attention to it and target ads on that basis they don't have to worry about the subset of things that people say online that can give rise to legal liability. So, the thing that, that the, 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 a lot of the Democrats critiquing the law need to really understand is that most things that people say online are just perfectly legal. They're protected by the First Amendment, right? It's not illegal to lie or be an idiot or just disagree or be extreme or anything like that. However, there's a subset of, of all of those adjectives that is illegal or that you can be sued over, right? When you defame someone, you know, Mike Calore murders puppies. That's. Not true, but if I said it as if it were true, I'm uh, damaging his reputation. Other things like harassment, threatening someone, uh, doxing someone, right? Revenge porn. So so that type of stuff is where platforms, it's really left up to them to self-regulate. And some of them self-regulate pretty well for some of these things. And and some don't try at all. and, And many are kind of in the middle. So that type of democratic critique really overstates what you could accomplish if Section 230 was not there. The Donald Trump critique is wrong because there's just, it's really Ted Cruz, the, the Republican senator from Texas who popularized the idea. The first time this came on my radar, he was grilling Mark Zuckerberg in 2018. And he said something like Section 230 immunity is predicated on the condition, this is how he talks, you know, predicated on the condition of, of partisan neutrality, right, that you have to treat liberals and conservatives equally. And that's just made up. It's not in the law. And it's not illegal to have a left-leaning or right-leaning social media platform. It's true that you have to do your moderation in good faith. And so that's kind of the, the, the one little nugget that this critique is building off of. But there's just nothing about the law that says you have to be uh, maintain partisan neutrality. So that's why the two loudest political critiques are both kind of dumb. Now, Those are kind of easy to deal with. What I was much more interested in engaging with in the article was the most robust, absolutist Section 230 defense. Is it true that if you peeled back Section 230, you would just take the internet and all the good stuff about it crumbling down in addition to whatever bad stuff you think you're addressing? And the more I looked into it, the more I decided not really. How so? So what would have happened if there was no Section 230? Remember, we started off by talking about forms of liability in law that existed before the Internet, right? So this is America, like other former British colonies, has the common law tradition of law where the rules of law are kind of shaped over time in cases that judges rule on. And over time, applying existing precedents to new situations, the law develops. And of course, legislatures also pass laws and affect and like Section 230, for example. So it's not purely judges, but that's sort of like the meat of civil liability. When, can, you know, who can you sue? Who can sue you has evolved over time this way. Now, we talked about the case that created the moderator's dilemma in the 90s there's no way that that would have been just become the default law in the nation. It was one state level trial court. And it became in his decision became instantly controversial, because everyone was like, Whoa, this will be a disaster. And so if 230 hadn't been passed, it's possible that there would have been more painful decisions. But by far, the likeliest outcome is that higher courts and courts elsewhere in the country would have come up with more thoughtful ways to define what are the legal responsibilities of these new internet platforms section 230 kind of put a plug in that and so it right. didn't let didn't let that evolve
0: well i mean you're they're basically formulating a law that would potentially apply to businesses that did not even exist yet so it would be hard i think to have established the appropriate law at that point in time glad we do have to move on to the next segment but Very quickly, tell us what's going to happen. I mean, Capitol Hill has been buzzing about Section 230 for a while now. So is there any proposed amendment or new legislation out there that actually has legs?
2: There are lots of bills that have been floated that have a greater or lesser degree of of going anywhere. There's, There's a bipartisan one. Um, called the PACT Act, which has some modest pretty good ideas in there, especially around at least making companies be transparent about how they moderate content. There's also a proposal that I write about in my story that has not yet turned into a a bill, but I think is very interesting. It's from a professor named Danielle Citron and her idea is it's it's kind of elegant. She basically says let's just tweak the immunity part of the law So that it only applies to companies that take reasonable steps to address or remove whatever kind of content is being sued over. You wouldn't have to prove every single time that you handled the thing the right way. You would just have to show a judge, look, we have a a reasonable system in place to handle these problems, even if this one slipped by us. And I think that's a pretty interesting compromise position because it recognizes every platform is going to screw up. Sometimes you can't have perfect enforcement but at least this will say, you know this will definitely wipe out the bad faith companies out there 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 are sites that exist on the internet for basically for the purpose of having people post You know revenge material on their ex-girlfriends or just ugly untrue rumors about people or Slander businesses to try to then so that the website can then shake those businesses down This is like the dark underbelly of stuff forget about Facebook and YouTube for a second There's this dark underbelly of like bad actors who benefit from section 230 and so if you at least said you have to have some reasonable procedures in place That wipes out the bad guys because if you're trying to do wrong, then you're not being reasonable. And then it would also hold the bigger players and and the the sort of sloppy but not malicious actors more accountable uh, for things that they don't have to worry about currently.
0: All right, everyone should go read Galad's story about Section 230 on Wired.com, and if you are a, a print subscriber to Wired, you can also read it in the June issue. It is the cover. Um, it's great. It is, I think, one of the best distillations of Section 230 I've read, but I'm a little bit biased, of course. Um, but so- you're,
2: biased, you're biased against me, though, so this means even more.
0: Right, <laughs> yes. I should clearly be moderated. Um, all right, stay with us. We'll be right back after this quick break. Perhaps the most high-profile example of the debate over platforms and their users happened earlier this year, when just about every social media site blocked former President Donald Trump after he allegedly helped incite the riot on the Capitol in early January. So Facebook has this oversight committee, right? And it's this supposedly neutral entity within Facebook that has the power to override even Mark Zuckerberg. And this week, on Wednesday, this oversight board made the decision to uphold Facebook's ban of Donald Trump's account. For now, anyway. But obviously, as we've just talked about, this is you know, a lot more than just a simple yes or no decision. And Glad somehow, as you were you know, finishing this cover story about Section 230, you also wrote a story about Facebook's oversight board. So tell us what the committee said and, and essentially how they arrived at this decision to uphold the ban on Trump's account.
2: They sort of upheld the ban. It was kind of a Solomonic decision of course Solomon didn't really split the baby that was a ploy by him but he's remembered for splitting the baby um,
0: we're gonna have to unpack that in another episode
2: yeah come come back for Bible study with uh, Lauren and Gilad um,
0: we can divide it into Old Testament and New Testament
2: you know I'm on that Old Testament so <clears throat> <laughs> so because I'm Jewish. Um, so so the question, I, 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 that, I, I, can, I, I know this is for the yes. listeners, that's for the <laughs> listeners, because they can't see my curls. Um, so the question that Facebook posed to the Facebook oversight board was, were we right to suspend Donald Trump's account indefinitely? And the oversight board said you were right to suspend his account, but you were wrong to do so indefinitely. And then the last interesting thing is the board didn't say, here's the right duration to ban him. Because the board could have said, you were wrong to ban him indefinitely, and now time's up, you have to let him back. Or they could have said, you were wrong to ban him indefinitely, you should have banned him permanently. It didn't do that. It said, you, Facebook, have to apply your rules, which don't include indefinite bans, and come to a decision here. And you have six months to do so. So in that respect, it kicked this ultimate decision, the resolution of the Donald Trump Facebook saga down the road. So who is on this oversight board? Do we know? We, we do know that the membership is public. It's a mix of law professor types and former judges and human rights people. It's a pre, you know, I can't rattle off the, the membership by memory, I'm afraid, but it is a pretty respectable bunch of people that tries to, you know, draw somewhat from different parts of the ideological spectrum and incorporate voices from around the world.
1: So Facebook has this thing called the newsworthiness rule, which generally gives political leaders extra leeway to say things on Facebook that not just anyone is allowed to say. Uh, It basically lets Facebook bend the rules if you're a world leader because what you say is newsworthy and it really matters in the real world. That means that Facebook is going to wait longer to pull the plug on anyone in a position of political power. Uh, What did the oversight board say about this policy?
2: This was probably the most interesting part to me. So the oversight board, what it tells Facebook to do about Trump's account is binding. So Facebook does have to do what the board says. Facebook also asked for the board's advice, and the board has sort of freewheeling power to just recommend policy changes that Facebook is not required to follow. And so on that front, the board said, Basically, Facebook, it was good that you took into account the real world context of January 6th and that you that you factored in what was happening when you were judging the risk of harm coming from Donald Trump's statements. Personally, bracket, this is me speaking again. I think there's like a big question about whether the statements that actually got Trump banned did the bad things that facebook is saying it did but that's a side note The, the oversight board agreed that because trump was saying nice things about the rioters even as he told them to go home and because he was repeating the the lie about the stolen election even as he was telling the rioters to go home the oversight board said yeah in the context of the ongoing violence the fact that he was praising these people the fact that he was repeating the stolen election thing that created a risk of harm And so this is the right way to think about it. It's not just what somebody posts. It's about what's happening in the world. And then the second part of this is they said, Facebook, you should recognize that political leaders have a bigger microphone. And so that can raise the dangerousness of what they do. And so that is arguing for kind of the opposite of the newsworthiness exception, because the idea behind the newsworthiness exception for public figures is people have a right and an interest in knowing what... A public official like Donald Trump is saying. But what the oversight board is saying is actually everybody should be subject to the same set of rules. And when you're making this risk assessment, you have to recognize that the, the more prominent, powerful people have greater ability to cause harm. And so if anything, the implication there is that it should have a quicker hook Mm-hmm. On violations by people with huge platforms. and there and and a lot of a lot of people who commented on this case from from conservatives to liberals, I found examples of people urging the oversight board to go in this direction because it's pretty intuitive frankly if 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 I put something to Facebook that is, you know, inciting violence or something as as stupid and bad as that would be, no one's going to listen to me. Mm-hmm. But if Donald Trump does it, or 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 Angela Merkel does it, or Benjamin Netanyahu, or Rodrigo Duterte, or whoever, with millions of followers and, and a lot, you know, political support, the real world consequences have the potential to be much greater. So right. what I'm really curious to see is, How does Facebook respond to that policy suggestion?
0: Right. So Facebook has been using this idea of newsworthiness to give these leaders a little bit extra leeway, probably err on the side of leaving things up, whereas the board is arguing, actually, it's these people who have such great influence over real-life actions and behaviors that it needs to be addressed differently and perhaps more quickly. Um, Now, a lot of this conversation, of course, is focused on Facebook because we're talking about the Facebook Oversight Board, but there's nothing stopping... Donald Trump from going, you know, off platform, going to another platform and and launching a website or, you know, I guess he can't go on Twitter at this point in time either. But like, tell us what tell us what he's doing now and like what happens if he runs again in the future, right? Where do you envision his content being shared?
2: Well, he did launch his own website called From the Desk of Donald Trump. And it's best website name ever.
0: I have to say I've not been to that website.
2: Imagine Twitter, but the only user is Donald Trump and there's no other features. That is what this site is. It's a microblog. It's a place where he can tweet his well, you know, let's see what's up there now. I'm gonna go to Donald J Trump.com slash desk. <laughs> 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 that, that's really I'm sorry. what the URL is? Not, not a joke. That is the real URL. I'm and... Sorry. Congratulations to the great patriots of Wyndham, New Hampshire for their incredible fight to seek out the truth on the massive election fraud Which took place in New Hampshire. I'm not gonna read the rest of it so like that's kind of that's what you if you're missing that in your life, that's where you can go to get it and You know, I, I find the existence of this. It's obviously humorous It's also interesting because it, 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 it proves simultaneously that Facebook can't literally censor Donald Trump You know, he's Facebook and Twitter have kicked him off their platforms, but he's still able to make his statements online But on the other hand, it's not going to have the same juice as forget, honestly, forget Facebook. We all know that what really gave Trump's statements juice was Twitter. And the reasons are, the biggest reason is, is us, is journalists. Journalists are kind of hooked up intravenously to Twitter in a way that very few normal people are. We're obsessed with what we see there. The platform has design elements that make it really easy to comment on things and kind of amplify them and then laugh at them or not or not laugh at them. And Trump just tapped into Twitter so well. And that was just a way to really inject himself into the media discourse. And, of course, he was the president of the United States, and he would tweet, you know, I'm firing the secretary of state on Twitter. And so there, to some degree, the news media was kind of had no choice but to cover it but it made it a lot easier to get our attention by going where we were already in a way that journalists are not sort of just like checking facebook for what donald trump has to say there and certainly are not going to be checking from the you know donaldjtrump.com desk um you know and then the other thing of course is that he's not president anymore as much as everybody loves to talk about donald trump see for example this podcast um (laughs) You know, he, he's not going to command the same level of media coverage when he's not the president, which gets us to your question, Lauren, what if he runs again? Um, to which I say, first, can we all just take a breath and enjoy a moment of relative <laughs> of quiet, not making a political statement, I'm just stating a preference for calm. Um, th- this issue will have been resolved by then. The Facebook decision will have been resolved by then he will either be permanently banned which i'm skeptical of or but, but we'll see i really don't know because this decision surprised me in the first place or he'll be allowed back and then maybe he'll break the rules again and get kicked off again so there's going to be my point is just there's going to be more twists and turns in this story before we even get to 2023 when he will if he decides to be a candidate again and is a free man will be a candidate again and I would not have predicted the oversight board would have issued the decision it did. I thought they were just going to say the emergency's over. You got to let this guy back now. And so, for that reason, I'm not going to make a prediction here because I just don't know.
0: All right, Galad, we're going to take another quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about the real reason we brought you on this week's show. So stay tuned. Galad, what is your recommendation this week?
2: My recommendation this week is for anybody who likes iced coffee but finds the prospect of making it at home overly elaborate, which is Aeropress. So I I don't usually come on here and show for specific brands. You know that. I'm I'm, I'm Mr. Generic.
0: Mike right now is just giving the thumbs up sign and nodding vigorously through the Zoom.
2: It's a very small thing. It does not take up a lot of room in your kitchen at all. Basically, it's a tube with a plunger and a filter. And it is a way to make something almost espresso really fast without a lot of equipment i say almost espresso because it doesn't generate the same pressure as an espresso machine what it does do uh, indisputably is generate a small volume of concentrated coffee really fast you boil some water you pour it in you, you stir and then you plunge the cool thing is that then you have the small volume of of concentrated coffee then all you need to do is take your glass with your ice and your milk, and pour that in, and fill it, up and fill the rest of it with water, and you've got really tasty iced coffee that you made really fast. And the uh, the Aeropress process um, imparts less bitterness to your brew. That's kind of its biggest selling point. Although I, I really don't mind traditionally brewed coffee myself, but the Aeropress does have kind of a cleaner, maybe a little bit more sour, but less bitter taste, which I find really good for iced coffee. So you just make your iced coffee. This is I found like such a f- complete nerd here. I'm not even a coffee aficionado. I just like iced coffee and I don't like having to go out to buy it. So that's my recommendation. Also, um, you're
1: using an AeroPress means that you are actually a coffee aficionado.
2: (laughs) No, can I be Hmm. honest with you?
0: I mean, that's what we're here for.
2: The the way I got the AeroPress was, there's a YouTube video I saw featuring the inventor of the AeroPress, this guy named Alan Adler, who's just the definition of avuncular, kind of a nerdy, kindly old uncle type. And uh, it's just him in his kitchen making aeropress for five minutes and explaining it. And I was just so charmed by it. I was like, uh, "How much is this? Twenty bucks? All right, I'm buying one." <laughs> he also invented the aerobe flying disc. Really? Yeah. Same guy. Yeah, this guy's got range. Wow, we should knight him. We should have him on the show. And by we, yeah. I mean you, because I'm not, I'm still not officially a host. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>
0: I like how he says still not as though he knows it's coming.
2: Yeah, I'm not yet. Host. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, thank you for that recommendation. A very thoughtful one this week a lot. Mike, what's your recommendation? Um,
1: now, I'm going to recommend an app, and it is one of the most popular apps in the App Store and in the Google Play Store. But I first encountered it this week, and I absolutely love it. It's called Shop. So, S-H-O-P, shop. It's from the people at Shopify. Uh, It's an app that you download that if you're shopping at a website that uses Shopify for checkout, you can hop into the app and complete your checkout there. So, it kind of acts like a wallet of sorts. But the thing that I really love about it is you can connect it to your Gmail inbox and it watches tracking numbers as they come in and then gives you a master list of all of your tracking numbers. So if you order a bunch of things, like let's say you ordered toilet paper for your home, cat food for your cat, uh, a gift for mom.
0: An AeroPress for you.
1: An AeroPress for me it will show you all of those things in the app. So it's sort of like a, it's like an aggregator of all your tracking information. And then you can tap on it and you see like a a very, you know, sort of deluxe notification that shows you where the item is on a map, when the expected delivery is, it shows you all the steps and it combines, you know, multiple services. So you have like FedEx, UPS, USPS, DHL, they're all in one place. Uh, That is the best thing about it. It's free. So even if you don't buy a lot of stuff on sites that use shopify you can still get value from it if you buy stuff online which i assume is just about everybody who's listening to this so uh that's my recommendation shop check it out
0: cool yeah shopify has been doing some pretty interesting stuff
1: Uh, uh, well i'm sure none of it is as interesting as what you're about to tell us about lauren
0: Well, my recommendation might make you want to shop less. I'm pretty sure I've recommended this podcast before, but I had the chance to listen to a few more episodes this past weekend, and so I wanted to recommend it again. It's called How to Save a Planet. It is a Gimlet podcast hosted by a marine biologist, Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, and uh, one of the Gimlet guys, Alex Bloomberg. Um, I really, really like this podcast, and in particular, the episodes that I've listened to most recently, one had to do with whether or not your personal carbon footprint, the whole idea of it is BS. And so they sort of argued both sides. It was a listener question that was submitted, and the listener's sibling was arguing that no, your own personal consumption doesn't matter that much, we have to have policy changes there are too many systemic problems that's how we're going to address climate change and the listener was like no i really think like people should be you know eating vegetarian or vegan and driving evs and recycling and and which side is correct and so the hosts really i think effectively argued both sides of the equation and i found it to be a fascinating episode and then i ended up listening these are from like march but i was catching up and then i listened to one about um beef as well and what's the beef with beef uh How much should we be cutting back on red meat? Um, It went into the history of the Farm Bill and um, how the American system of farming subsidies has basically informed a lot of the ways we consume food and um, basically whether you should stop eating those burgers if you want to help solve climate change. Um, And once again, it's a very nuanced topic. it's There's no real clear straight answer, but I think the host do a really good job of unpacking these things. And so I recommend listening to How to Save a Planet.
1: Nice. I'm going to go give that a shot because I, I love the beef debate as a lifelong vegetarian and now a vegan. I think it is fascinating.
0: It
2: really Wait, is. Wait, sorry. LG, you said both sides of the debate so many times that my eyes kind of glazed over or my ears kind of glazed over. What did you decide? Like, how did it make you think about your own behavior here
0: one of the conclusions that the hosts arrived at particularly in the personal carbon footprint episode is that the best solution might be just to use your own personal influence whatever your sphere of influence might be whether that's just you and your friends or family or whether maybe you have a little bit of a larger platform like we tend to have, uh, working in media, um, to to start the conversation about it more and talk to people about it more. Because if one person gives up meat or one person drives an electric vehicle, you're not making that much of a difference. Because they do these calculations in the show and they determine that your, your individual actions actually count for a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of impact. They even say at some point on the show, like, if you were to die tomorrow, sorry to be dark, but like the fact that you are driving a Tesla is not going to make that much of a difference in the world, right? But it's actually when you can start to affect changes in your own community, you know, uh, petitioning to electrify your your local town or city, um, getting five people to give up beef, um, convincing your friends to take public transit with you, that you start to like affect things sort of a little bit more broadly. Um, and then, of course, we do need large scale policy changes in place in order order to actually get our carbon emissions under control so um there was like no straight answer but I guess I arrived at the I personally arrived at okay maybe I should go back to eating meat less because there was a period of time where I wasn't eating meat for years and and then I sort of like started sneaking in it again um I started I have been thinking more about electric vehicles because I currently don't drive an electric vehicle and I feel pretty badly about it um and I started to think about my own individual actions, but I actually started to think more critically about okay, but how can I, how can I work with groups or like people like bro- more broadly to to think about like the- how we can affect these changes?
2: Yeah, it's I mean it's similar. It's similar to any any collective problem has has this characteristic to it. Like even if you think about voting, your individual vote is just never going to decide the election. Um, and, and so you could say it's it, you, you could take a strong version of that and say, spend the time you would have spent voting, just like reminding 20 people to vote and telling them who the right candidate is. But but there's a there's a there's another justification for voting, which is that, you know, it's more of an ethical question and w- which is sort of, you know, what is what is the right thing? What would you want everybody to do? And it's well, participate in democracy. And that's where the the climate behavior stuff gets a little challenging whereas you know i am completely sympathetic to the idea of the 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 call the caller on this show that you know isn't it all systemic and it's all about policy change but then there's a sort of other question which is more one of ethics than than what's actually going to solve the problem sorry i I don't know know why we had to get all deep here sounds like a great podcast lauren
0: yeah uh and it's okay we we like going deep on this podcast and um i hope that everyone enjoyed this podcast as much as they enjoy the recommended podcast
2: so, mm, I think we hope that they enjoy this one more, but that one also.
0: Sure. Yeah. Listen to this one first and then kick out to that. You
2: know what? Have a nice coffee, buy some shit online, listen to this podcast, five stars, listen to that one, four stars, move on.
1: <laughs> I'm sure at this point nobody is listening to this show anymore. So, can
0: <laughs> all right. That's our show. Galad, thank you again for joining us, our unofficial third co host. Everyone go read Galad's cover story. Bye, guys. And thanks to all of you for listening especially if you've listened this long and especially if you've listened to our seven o'clock in the morning voices if you have feedback you can find all of us on twitter just send all of your complaints to galad Uh, check the show notes we'll put our handles in there this show is produced by the awesome boone ashworth who deals with our bad jokes every week goodbye for now we'll be back next week
1: hi everyone michael from gadget lab here